The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Welcome. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today, we are going to address what many people suffer, but few discuss. Our topic is body-focused repetitive behaviors, nail-biting, hair-pulling, skin-picking, and the question we are asking is, how can people deal with this? The answers and a real understanding of this problem comes from our guest and expert, Stacy Nakal. Stacy Nakal is the author of the new and important book, Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, an Integrative Psychodynamic Approach. Stacy will provide us with answers and a theoretical understanding, as well as clinical examples from 20 years of professional experience. She will be considering the who, what, and why of the people who suffer with these behaviors and what is possible when they receive help. Stacy is a licensed clinical social worker, a certified group psychotherapist, a certified clinical trauma professional. She runs a private practice in Austin, Texas. She works with adolescents and adults struggling with body-focused repetitive behaviors and provides clinical training as well as consultation. Stacey Nakal, it is my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, great. Stacey, let's start by defining what is body-focused repetitive behavior? Yes. So body-focused repetitive behaviors are repetitive over-grooming acts on the self-harm continuum that serve as coping mechanisms. They do damage to the dermis, and they are very effective in the short term in regulating physiological and emotional states and connect to a wide array of comorbid conditions. And as you mentioned, they include skin picking, hair pulling, and cuticle, nail, cheek, and tongue biting. Mm. So we would be talking then, well, just to add to it, I've had a number of adult mothers have problems or worry about their daughters who are pulling their eyelashes out and they don't understand it and the youngster can't help it. Um, Let me ask you that. That's the example that comes to mind for me. But something you said in the book also I want to put on the table, and that is the difference between self-harming behavior like cutting and this body-focused repetitive behavior, Stacey? Yes. Well, I like to think of self-harm as being a continuum. And so on one side are the more well-known self-harm behaviors, like you mentioned cutting, which has a little bit more of an emphasis on the pain and um, a little bit more emphasis on, on kind of expressing and making clear what's inside, bringing it outside. Whereas on the other side of the continuum, people who are pulling their hair and picking their skin are really more trying just to regulate their nervous systems, trying to keep it all together and 
the the picking or pulling is more like letting out a little bit of steam bit by bit while keeping it very hidden. So they're very similar, but they they have a little bit of different motivations and it can definitely overlap. Okay. Do you think, I, I remember someone in high school, it, it, she came to my mind as I was reading your, your book. She used to pull her hair out, then she would eat her hair and Many of us, we just didn't understand it, but I never, I wondered if she knew she was doing it when she was doing it, Stacy, Is there an awareness all the time or is it sometimes they don't even realize they're doing it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there are two different subtypes of picking and pulling and biting behaviors. And one is focused where there is an awareness of trying to go after some kind of blemish or unwanted hair and there's also a more um, automatic version in which people often don't even know that their hand has gone up to their hair and find themselves maybe an hour later with a bunch of hairs pulled or um, blemishes picked. So there are both kinds. And uh, usually people sometimes slip into either kind, but it can really be that somebody's doing it and not aware at the time. Okay. What's the gender breakdown on this, Stacy? Yeah, so typically about 70% of people who come to seek treatment are female, but that's probably kind of an undercounting of the men who engage in this, but maybe don't seek treatment. Maybe it's not at a level that bothers them quite as much, or they're not as um, open to seeking, seeking treatment. Okay, so you've been working with this population for 20 years. What's the most common reason an adult or a teenager comes finally to, to seek treatment? Yeah, well, usually it's when the hair pulling or the skin picking gets to a point where it can't be covered or camouflaged, and it really becomes clear that it's interfering in certain areas of life, often romantic life. So uh, somebody may well be keeping their makeup on at all times, but then when they want to get more intimate with someone, there's a time when they're going to have to take off their makeup. Mm -hmm. And so that camouflaging that covers blemishes and also using a wig or, or whatever else might cover bald spots kind of gets in the way of life in some way. And then they come to see me. And when they come to see you, are they asking, how can you make this stop for me? Or why am I doing this? What are they typically um, bringing to your attention? Yes, absolutely. Most people come to me saying, I hate this behavior. I want to get rid of it. And I want to get rid of it now. And how quickly can you help me do that? And so our first step is to pause. And I let them know that my job is, is first to help them develop realistic goals and to develop kind of a compassionate relationship with a behavior that we don't get anywhere when we go toward a behavior with hate. Mm, so well said. So just as a sidebar, you've had your own personal experience with this kind of suffering. Can you share a little bit of that? Because your, your patients, you really understand where they've been because in some ways you've been in a similar place. Yes, I, I have come out for the first time with my own story in the introduction of this book, and I'm getting more comfortable talking about it. And it really is the source of my passion and love for working with this population. So I struggled with this from when I was a teenager, all throughout college, throughout uh, most of my life after college. 
And actually writing about the topic was the best way for me to begin to understand the motivation for me, which also then led me to let go of the behaviors. So I'm now in remission from the behaviors, from telling my story and in an embodied way, um, working through that in my own therapy, which really helps to me to have understanding and faith that, that this is really something that people can work through on a deep level. When you say that about the writing and telling your story, I mean, it's been many years that you've been in remission. It reminds me, I want our, our listeners to know something. Many of Stacy's patients, when they knew she was writing this book, they wanted to be in this book. They would change their names, but they were very interested in passing forward their story. And correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the treatment is narrating the healing, is reauthoring the story of when this happened, why it happened, and the pathway out of it. Um, so it's so striking and impressive to me that it means the shame really lifts once there's treatment, because the story wants to be told, and that's such a healthy sign. Right. Yes. It, it was wonderful for me to experience that with my clients. Some of their stories were very touching. They all were interviewed by research assistants. So then when I would listen to the recordings, um, sometimes I would just find myself crying with them mm. because we went through so much together. And each of these clients came from, like you said, such a shame-filled place. Um, Andy in the book was so full of shame. She felt like she was a monster when she first came to see me and and then to be able to share her story. And actually she gets the last word in the story, which she sort of enjoyed that that dynamic that she really came through it and can can share it without shame and, and really help others and give back. And, and I think that piece was empowering for the clients who did choose to share. Mm-hmm. Now, often, we've both been in the field a long time, the treatment for uh, body-focused repetitive behavior disorder is more of a cognitive behavioral approach or habit reversal training. One of the things you do and you bring to light in your book is an integrative psychodynamic approach. Tell us what that means and what does that entail, Stace? Yes. So when I think of the integrative piece, I think I'm integrating mind and body, which we're doing more and more in treatment, but I'm also integrating the skin. So mind, body, and skin, and the stories that the skin has to tell becomes part of the treatment. I'm also integrating this base in the psychodynamic field where the therapeutic relationship is the main source of healing, but we're integrating that with cognitive, behavioral, art, and all kinds of strategies. So there's nothing off limits, but it's all grounded and contained within the therapeutic relationship. One thing, one story you gave was that when the young woman came, she immediately thought she had to tell every single bit about the disorder. And you said, wait, whoa, 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 <laughs> we let's go one step at a time. And you described it as you wanted her to know she could be with you and trust you before she over-disclosed in a way that might make her ultimately uncomfortable. Do I have that right? Yes, definitely. And um, that, that piece of creating a safety phase where we're really getting to know one another and I'm slowly getting to know and understand what their behaviors are and what drives and motivates their behaviors 
And that peace really allows their nervous systems to begin to relax with me, at which point we can talk about the actual stories with, uh, with the potential to get feelings out of the body. So we have to have trust in order to get to that place where we can really work through some of, some of the pieces that we'll find, which are often trauma and uh, unresolved grief. And a lot of times people start doing this when there's something they're coping with, whether that's a divorce as an adolescent or the loss of a grandparent who was a really important attachment figure. And we all need to be in a safe space with a trusted other in order to really share those stories and get them out. Mm. Now, do most know the point at which they started the behavior when you start the treatment? So that's a, a great question. Most know at some point, not always at the beginning. So um, I can think of one client who she could not remember where she got the first scab on her head that she started picking and then it developed into a full scalp picking um, behavior. And then two years into our work, she finally told me a story where her husband had thrown a cup, not meant to hit her, but it hit, grazed her on the head. And that's where that first wound came from. And so she wasn't ready to put together those two things when, when she first came in. But once we, we had that trusting relationship and she was able to explore, she remembered where that first scab had come from. Mm. I, one of the ways uh, I want to share with our listeners, the way Stacy writes it is that the behavior is like a psychic wound. Mm-hmm. And she she and and the patient, they follow the breadcrumbs back to the original spot where something happened that was beyond their ability to regulate. And this, this pulling, picking um, is actually right, a, a desperate attempt to regulate, Stacy. Yes, yes, exactly. And so one of the things that I guess you're talking about in terms of the treatment you offer is a way to regulate, co-regulate with you before they really find a way to regulate apart from you as their new partner. Exactly. And something really important to note around that regulation is that oftentimes these clients missed out on an early part of learning how to regulate. A lot of times their central nervous systems were very sensitive and they may have had real skin sensitivities or hearing sensitivities in the world just in and of itself felt overwhelming. And so that's a really hard place to build self-regulation skills on. And instead a false self can develop that's more perfectionist and, and trying to show people everything's okay when everything's really not okay. So we have to go back to that feeling of having everything not be okay and and where I can begin to help them regulate those emotions that were the hardest to sit with when they were growing up. Mm. And when you think of trauma, early trauma, even, even trauma across the age range, we know that the presence of the compassionate presence of another, the touch of another, someone else being there is the prime regulator to bring our body back to a steady state. So it really starts to make sense that in desperation, they would try to do something. It's interesting, Mm -hmm. touching their body, scratching their body, a desperate attempt to bring down that fight flight, that anxiety and dysregulation. 
Exactly. And I think of it as a hard comfort. So soft comforts, we often like a hug from a friend can be so soothing. But if we don't have a friend there, sometimes a harder comfort, like a scratch or like picking off a scab can really provide a similar flow of endorphins into the brain and a similar sense of calm, even though it has a negative side effect. Mm. So one of the treatment aspects that you talk about is sometimes using, you call it the healing herd, a group, a group modality for this type of treatment. How do, are people comfortable sharing with other people? Well, you know, I think it takes, it takes a sense of um, people who come into my groups know that there are probably other people in the groups who have some of the same issues. So in that way, I have a little bit of an advantage. Um, so people usually, um, one person will be the brave one to talk about um, struggling with picking or pulling, and then other people will join in. And soon that shame that was kind of surrounding all of them starts to dissipate in the room in a way that really just my feedback can't, can't do. Mm. It was interesting. I think at one point in the book, one of your folks says she expected everyone in the group to look odd or weird. <laughs> and, and when they looked like regular, nice, normal um, adolescents, she was so surprised and so relieved. But it, it, to me, it meant she herself pictured herself as looking odd and weird, perhaps, and projected that they would be odd and weird. And then she saw they were just regular teenagers, just like her. Yes, yes, Suzanne. And I think part of what's so so painful about this disorder is that um, people begin to define it as so disgusting and gross and that they're freaks for engaging in it. And one, one of those pieces is that this is something we have in common with mammals and all the way to all animals, including lizards, because all animals groom and grooming involves some things that we think of as being gross, like eating um, skin or hair or nails. And so because of that, there's, there's both the not sharing of it and holding that secret inside. And then the sense if anybody knew what they were doing, they would think of them as a freak. So having that ability to see another person who's engaging in these behaviors and see this person isn't a freak, they're just coping in the same way I do, really brings on self-compassion. Mm, it's, it's really terrific. We only have about another minute in this section, but <clears throat> are the parents c- c- trying to force the kids to come to you or are the adolescents on their own? Like you said, there was the adult woman who came after the cup and the scab. Are the adolescents wanting to seek you on their own? Well, you know, oftentimes parents try to get therapy for their children uh, before the children are ready. And I always let them know that we we have to make sure that, that the child is invested. So I might encourage them to ask the child to come just once to see me. And mm-hmm. then, the, then it'll be that child or adolescent's choice. Because uh, oftentimes when the parents want to get rid of this behavior, it's also often become a tug of war. Right. And the child just doubles down. So if okay. therapy becomes that part of that tug of war, that's not going to be helpful. Okay. We're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Stacy Nakal. She's a licensed clinical social worker. And she's the author of a new, it's a fabulous book, Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, an Integrative Psychodynamic Approach. Stay with us. We have many more topics to cover. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your midlife roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We are fortunate enough to be with the author of a new and important book with Stacey Nickel, and her book is Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors. Now, she's using an integrative psychodynamic, psychodynamic approach, and it's occurred to us that perhaps we should distinguish it a bit more from a behavioral approach. Um, so let's do that. Let's start by doing that before we go into the steps of a psychodynamic approach. Okay, so one of the main differences is that in the cognitive and behavioral approach to these behaviors, therapists are encouraged not to look at the roots of the behaviors, but really to look at the behaviors as the problems themselves. So that's a very big difference. I see the behaviors as symbols and signs, sort of that line of breadcrumbs you mentioned to follow down into the roots. And that's uh, where I think the real heart of change can come in. Um, the other pieces is, is that prioritizing of the, the relationship so that my body begins to help regulate my client's body. And we're not just working uh, on behaviors or using worksheets. And, um, and then the, the main other piece is that our goal is not focused simply on getting rid of the behaviors. It's really focused on building the emotional regulation skills 
that can help people slowly lose the need to engage in the behaviors. Okay. So tell us what you mean when you say your body could help the, the adolescent's body with regulation. Sure. Well, I pay attention to a lot of body language in my office. And so I might see that someone is smiling when I'm beginning to feel very sad. And I will mention that in the treatment. Okay. So I notice that you're smiling, but I'm sensing that there's some sadness underneath. Do you need me to hold that sadness right now? Or are you starting to feel it in your body? Can we talk about it? So I, I process a lot of the feelings before they might even be ready to process the feelings. And then I can sit with them as we process feelings in a way they may never have learned how to process grief or rage. Uh, so we do it together and I use my the feelings in my body to know what they might be feeling. Oh, what they might be feeling and what they might be cutting off. What they might be cutting yes, off. Yes, yes. Okay. Oh, that's a great example. So bring us now to the kind of steps that, you have in mind in your journey with someone in a more integrative psychotherapy treatment for um, this behavior? Sure. Well, first, I'm, I'm always going to be doing a full assessment in the safety phase. So it's not just the sheet that the client fills out before they come to see me or our first session of questions. I'm really looking to find any trauma residue and uh, noticing dissociative features in in our sessions to help me do that. Uh, and as we're, we're assessing, we're beginning to build a therapeutic alliance. They're beginning to gain some trust in me. As we start to uh, set goals, I begin to help them recognize that if our goal is to never pull again or never pick again, we're probably setting ourselves up for failure. But if we mm. can think about it as let's see if I can rely on this less and rely on healthier skills more. And then that's a different kind of a goal. Yes. Yes. Good. So meanwhile, I'm kind of formulating my case and formulating my understanding of what it is that the attachment to the behavior is, is really about. And I'm also really aware of client resistance in that, in that process. So um, I never want to, do anything that will look like I'm trying to take away a behavior. Mm -hmm. We're just looking to really understand the, the, the role it's been serving. Um, and as we do that, we're building self-compassion. So I have a few metaphors that I use to build self-compassion. And one of those comes again from the animal kingdom that I note that animals also engage in body focused behaviors, but only when they enter our stressful worlds. And some of the triggers for animals are also the triggers for humans, like frustration, like boredom, like being trapped in too small of a space and mm -hmm. like being isolated. And so sometimes, even if it's hard to feel compassion for yourself, you can feel compassion for an animal who's in the same situation. And again, that, that can lead you to feel a little bit less critical and judgmental of your own behaviors. Like when a little dog is biting his own paw over and over again um, exactly. yeah, because he's been left in a basement for too long or something horrendous like that. Exactly. And the nice thing about that is that veterinarians have been able to learn that if we improve that dog's circumstances, give him more to do during the day, maybe put a friend in there with him, he can let go of those behaviors. So mm. that's a really good sign for us too. The other thing that I just want to underscore is, so you're saying the message your your folks are getting is we're not taking these training wheels off 
until your sense of co-regulation and your use of different skills is in place. You don't have a stake in ripping this away from them. Exactly. Exactly. One of my clients who I mentioned in the book, Rose, um, she refers to her picking and pulling behaviors as her blanket with thorns. Oh, boy. And so I always think, why would I take away someone's blanket? Um, we have to acknowledge the thorns, but that blanket, is it has a job to do. It's interesting that she connects the wish for soothing with a dangerous way of doing it because she has thorns in that blanket. Yes. Most mm -hmm. of my clients can really come to have a healthy appreciation for how well picking, pulling, and biting can do at regulating from different feeling states into other feeling states. Mm. But at a very heavy cost, Stace. At a very yeah. heavy cost. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you also talk about in the steps, shame, self-kindness, narrative therapy. Let's talk about some of that. Yeah. So, um, the shame is the first thing to, sh to shake off. And we do that with those, those steps um, of self-kindness self and self-awareness, mindfulness, and then seeing that we are just like other people in the same situation. And um, of course, groups can be helpful there, but we can do that um, in a diet as well. And then the embodied narrative therapy is really where the bulk of the work happens. Uh, we are going and exploring all of those nooks and crannies that we found during that assessment phase about when did this start? What was going on in the family? What were the stressors? And how did those contribute to this role that this person may have, which is usually as the helper, the fixer, the good girl, the good boy, and the peacemaker. And so what feelings get lost in the mix? And oftentimes those feelings of frustration, anger are the ones left behind. So in this work, while they're feeling their feelings, they're also going to be working on feeling feelings toward me and noticing when they're frustrated toward me and being able to feel that in their body, use words to express that and have a positive outcome with my response is really one of the, the critical pieces of the, the retelling of the story. Oh, that's terrific. Yep. That's really critical. It's happening in living color with you. In living color, I'll say something or do something that reminds them of somebody, you know, somebody putting them down or something that they experienced, um, somebody not accepting them and misunderstanding them and then putting that into words and getting it out is, is a new experience. Stacey, have you ever told your, your any, any patient that you've been through this journey yourself? Yes, well, I um, I usually am very cautious about that, right? Um, and I've shared it mainly in 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 times with people who feel completely isolated and completely like they're a freak of nature, and that is one way that I've sometimes broken through that shame mm -hmm. um, is to tell them that that I'm a recovering skin picker. Mm -hmm. and that piece can really. Um, just if people already have respect for me and can see themselves in me, that just takes takes that to a different level. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is the first time that I really have come forward with all of so many layers of my own story. And as my clients have read it, they've given me feedback. And I've been really glad to know that their feedback has been mostly that it made them feel more connected with me or that some element of my story that really connected with their story um, made them feel like they could they could move through um, like I've moved through. 
you know, when you train um, doctoral students, psychologists, uh, psychoanalytic candidates, when you train people, the, the, the way you think about disclosure to a patient is never to just disclose, but just as Stacy said it, but to know you have a very good reason to mm. disclose that will move this person's treatment forward. Because it's never about the therapist story, but here, this is such a perfect example of where it's what the reason is well, well chosen in terms of the disclosure. And I'm sure, I'm sure it had a tremendous impact on some of them. And when I read the book, I could see, you know, what you, what you said about it and with certain patients, how important it was. Yes. Yes. And I think for them also, like being able to see that I've found a way to channel my aggression. So in the, in the introduction, I also mentioned that I really um, learned that I needed to use my fists and get out some of my internalized rage. And I became an amateur boxer. And so um, it's funny how many of my then find some kind of a, a fighting art uh, of their own, because there's, there's just a way that that can really help sublimate these previously unacceptable feelings. And what was your name again as a um, boxer? White Lightning. White Lightning, I love it. We can do a sitcom on this. It's too good. (laughs) (laughs) It's really, it's really such a valuable thing when when someone needs it to to be able to know how real you are and the journey you took. What else is involved in the steps? I noticed you mentioned things like um, the narrative therapy, even the work, the use of art therapy. Yeah, so I keep a a whiteboard in my office uh, and I use it frequently. So uh, one of the one of the amazing things about the whiteboard is we can just put a word that has no no clear meaning that someone feels very stuck around. So we could even put hair pulling in the middle of the board and we can just draw lines and and people can start to spontaneously say words that connect. And that's how for that, for example, with that woman, Andy, um, we wrote hair pulling in the middle of the board. And then one of those threads led to monster. And that's when we began to understand how terrible she had felt for her whole life about pulling in and eating her hair and what a freak of nature she felt like. And that led us to then use monster as a central word and look ahead at what comes out of there. And that's where we were able to find some, com- some compassion. Well, maybe not a monster, maybe coping, maybe suffering, maybe um, having no words for these feelings. Mm. Um, and, and people do artwork on that same board. And um, usually my clients are the artists. They come up with the image and we go from there. Mm-hmm. Do, does it, do most people use the um, art board or, or a percent, what percentage uses that? Well, I would say um, at some point or other, everybody sees me pick up my whiteboard and then sometimes they'll grow and they'll be like, oh, there's the board. Cause it'll usually be when we're stuck somewhere and we need to get out of the conscious mind and let our unconscious have some, some leeway. And usually we all get to that place where we're a little bit stuck and just thinking in a forward motion um, isn't going to help us. Mm-hmm. So we are going to um, be talking about family therapy for this. Um, let me just ask the question, have you ever seen that this being intergenerational? That is the mother also pulled her eyelashes out, the daughter does, or there was picking 
father, mother, and you see it in the next generation. Have you observed that with any of the cases that you've worked with? Yes, definitely. I would say um, it looks like there's at least enough evidence to show that there seems to be a genetic component um, in twin studies and intergenerational studies. So genetics seems to be a piece of it. But also, if a parent is is using this as their primary coping mechanism, it's not a surprise that their child might also pick it up as a right. coping mechanism. And parents are so worried about this um, and hate it when this happens. But what I always note is that, you know, as you continue working on regulating your own emotions, you'll be able to help your child more and you can both learn together. You don't have to have already learned this by the time you have children. Mm -hmm. So it definitely runs in the family for sure. So at that point, are both of them in treatment or do you start with one or the other? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's always helpful if, if the parent can be in therapy. Um, that always helps. So right. a lot of parents don't necessarily want to do that. Um, and then I'm working more with, with the, the child or the teen. But then we, we do bring them in for family sessions where we can start to work on some of those dynamics together. Okay. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next segment. Okay. Um, we're going to be taking a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Stacey Nakel, and she's the professional and the author of new and important of a new and important book, Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors. She's talking about an integrative psychodynamic approach. And what we were discussing in this segment was the difference between a behavioral approach and a more personal psychodynamic approach, where, as you heard us say, she lends herself. To the, to the youngster to help to be the co-regulator. And together they start to co-regulate and then the young person begins to be able to co-regulate in a much healthier way than the picking or the nail biting or the, or the pulling. So we have much more to talk about. In the next segment, we're gonna talk about a family therapy case. So stay with us, we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Glow and Tell is the new provocative podcast from beauty expert, spa owner, and product junkie, Carolyn Holdsworth. The Southern-raised entrepreneur will share her unvarnished opinions on self-care and all things that are meant to glow, inside and out. Carolyn will be joined by guest experts who will go deep, and listeners will discover and discuss plenty about what they see and feel in the mirror each day. Questions and answers will wrap each podcast with no topics out of bounds. Don't miss Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holdsworth, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you ever have an off day? Or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired, and contemplative thought, showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. 
But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Hi, I was just talking with Stacy Stacey Nakal. She's the author of the book we've been discussing this afternoon, Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, an Integrative Psychodynamic Approach. And I was speaking to Stacy, and I mentioned that this behavior has mostly come into my office by way of parents who are very concerned about the picking, hair pulling, nails, kind of destruction that they observe in their children. So it seems to me that, you know, the fact that Stacy does family therapy to address this makes a lot of sense. So Stacy, maybe tell us overall, what is the family therapy approach? And then maybe you can give us an example. Sure. So I really think of the family systems theory as being the grounding principle for, for bringing families in, which is that A family is a system that is all intertwined. So oftentimes the person who has maybe this sensitive nervous system is the one who's going to pick up on all the stress in the family. And that can come out as as the picking or pulling. And it it can often be expressing something for the whole family that's Mm -hmm. not being discussed. And so rather than think of it like treating just this person, it's wonderful if a family can can look at it like how can we all work to change the system? So just like in with when we were talking about animals, if you change the environment, the animal can let, get, let go of the behavior. So in this case, one of those changes is can we start to talk more openly about some of the things that have been under the surface, whether feelings or experiences that haven't been processed or traumas that the group that the family has been through. And oftentimes when the family addresses that, it can just have the, the wonderful impact on the child of the child not needing to, to engage in these behaviors at all anymore. Sometimes the preteens and teens can let go of this completely if their family environment can really take that challenge and change. Mm. So this example, is it usually just mother and teen? But are you able to get mother and father and teen? Um, how does it work? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, oftentimes the mother is the one who's more deeply involved because um, the mother is usually that one who's looked at as the primary caregiver. And um, that, that leaves a lot of responsibility on the mother's shoulders. So I always prefer, if possible, to bring in the whole family so that 
the father's role. Oftentimes the father's a little bit checked out and the father can come in and be more active and also help uh, be, be part of the healing process. So if we can, we try to take some of that burden off the mom mm-hmm. and have the dad come in and, and, and be part of it as well. Right. So can you speak about a family that you worked with and tell us why it worked, if it worked and why it didn't, if it didn't? Yes. Yeah, so this was just a, a wonderful um, case that I, I'm still in touch with the family and they were they were really happy um, to have this story shared in the book. Um, but we only worked together for about 15 months um, and we had weekly sessions. And this family, the way it worked is that everybody came into the session. And then when the child Colt was ready, he would ask the parents to leave. Mm -hmm. Colt is somebody who had been born with a birth defect that was a spinal imbalance that meant that he had about 13 surgeries before the age of eight. So he went through so much and his little body went through so much. And of course, his parents went through so much, but they were so busy coping that none of them had really stopped to process. Um, and ever since these he, these surgeries began, he engaged in some version of a body-focused behavior, or he would chew on his shirt, or he would bite his nails. But but by this point, he had begun, by the time he was 11, he had begun really pulling out hair, sometimes in handfuls, and he had enough bald patches that he had to start wearing a baseball cap to school. So that's how they came to see me. Mm -hmm. So in in working with this family, both uh, giving Colt that ability to control our sessions, I think that was a key point. He could come in, pick whatever pillow, blanket, spot he wanted, put everyone else where he wanted them (laughs) and, and have a completely different kind of situation than he did in surgery where he was in charge he could decide when the parents came, when they left, and um, had so much control. That was a huge piece um, of our work together. And also uh, me helping both him and them process and talk through those layers of trauma that they had experienced mm-hmm. um, was a critical component as well. You know, in a way, you allowed them to redo this trauma in a safe place with him in charge. Yes, yes. And, and really, it was so sad. But but even the first session, as soon as he sat down and realized he was comfortable with me, and I started telling his parents, they said they didn't understand why he did this. And I said, sometimes bodies hold trauma, even from things like, like surgeries. And he spoke up that very first day and said, I woke up in one surgery. Mm. And he had never been able to have the words for that because he was under anesthesia. And so just hearing me name that triggered something in him. And then they didn't know that he had had that experience, which was terrifying. He couldn't feel the pain, but he was aware of what was happening and aware that he couldn't talk. Oh, goodness. So they held him on the couch, one on one side, one on the other. And just that release for all of them crying, we let go of just parts of that trauma right there and then in our first session. Mm. At what point does he start to shift the hair pulling, and how does that play out in the family therapy? Yes, well, he, uh, his parents actually came to me when fifth grade ended, before he started sixth grade, and they they said in our session that they thought he was relying too much on that hat, and he was just 
kind of pulling his hair as much as he wanted. And so he agreed. And of course, no kid wants to wear a hat and be the only one wearing a hat in school. And everyone right. was asking, why do you get to wear it? That's right. And so he was motivated and he decided to take that summer where he was really just going to focus on letting go of the behavior. So again, this came from him. It was his parents sort of bringing it up, but he decided to change it. And so we worked on a lot of skills and they were mostly the communication skills. So we worked on him standing up to bullies because it was really when he would get frustrated that he would take those handfuls of hair out. Mm. So really helping him use his words to stand up for what he wanted and be assertive and learn how to handle when people weren't nice to him. All of that really helped so that he was able to let go of the pulling and let go of the hat. And and then soon after that, he was able to let go of me. Um, And so in his words, he said, you know, he used to play with his hair and then he started to feel better and then he totally conquered it. And then now he can say, I conquered that. So all of that was just fully empowering for him. And to this day, his parents had sent me a picture of his graduation from high school and he has a full head of hair. (laughs) It's a great, great example. Really great. Stacey, if you were to give our listeners a take home message, um, what, what do you want people to take from what your experience and the way you've shared it with us today? Yes, I would really like to share that the way to think about these behaviors is as coping mechanisms to just remember that image of the blanket with thorns for parents to remember that when they're so that they don't just tell their child to stop it or for a a partner who loves their their partner to see that this is a way of regulating their emotions. So just never to take it away, but to think about how can we strengthen other ways to soothe the central nervous system? That would be my biggest takeaway. Okay. Um, And what you've shared today is really, really incredible. Um, Now, how can people, how can other therapists find you if they want consult from you? You're really an expert in this. How could patients or families find you? Yes. So I, can be found on my website at www.stacynakel.com. I also have a blog on there that I've been keeping for many, many years that has a lot of the information that you can find in my book as I was thinking it through. And I have um, notices up there for when I hold training groups for therapists. Terrific. Terrific. Um, and the book, how, what is the best way to get the book? Yes, well, you can certainly order it from Rutledge directly. And I'm part of a series that's a focus on mental health series. So I encourage people to check out the whole series. And um, you can also just order it on Amazon. It's available as an ebook on a hardback. And uh, if you do order it from Amazon and you choose to, um, to leave a review, um, that's another benefit of ordering it directly from there. So you can, you can share with others what, what your experience was with the book. And let me tell uh, our listeners, whether you are in the field or you're a parent, this is a book you'll find fascinating and very helpful. It's beautifully written. It's really a treasure. Thank you, Suzanne. Stacey, I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live, but I mostly want to thank you for all the work you've done and the families and teens and adults that you've touched with your expertise and your own compassion and care. I want my listeners to remember that you can you will be able to hear this show 
um, by this evening as a podcast on any of the sites, Amazon Audible, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, Apple TV. We'll also be sending it out. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please continue to be cautious and be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.